morning. Good to see everyone here, and good to see that potluck is on the way. So I will not rush, but I will try to keep moving. We are, after much anticipation, back in the Gospel of Matthew. This summer we did uh, one series on glory, a house for my name, and then uh, we worked through a number of psalms, and we are back where we left off now in the fall uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be starting at chapter number 12, and we're going to look at the first 14 verses. So I'll give you a minute to turn there, and then as we always do, then I'll ask you out of reverence to stand as we read God's word, please. So Matthew 12, 1 through 14, and these are the living words of God. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take it out, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And may God bless the reading of his perfect word. When I was a teenager, I spent quite a bit of time working on the farm for my grandpa and for my Uncle Steve, uh, doing a variety of things. Grandpa was kind of running the grain farm at that point, and Uncle Steve was running the dairy, uh, and I was helping both of them. And we had certain things that carried on on Sunday and certain things that didn't. Saturday night, once it got too tough to combine, then the combine parked, and it sat there until Monday morning. And yet... There was a barn full of cows that still needed to be fed and milked, and so some of the work carried on. Some people notice that pastors have to work on Sunday, and this is true, and others do as well. Police and doctors and, and, and other critical care people continue to work on Sunday. And so this is something that I think there's an opportunity when we get to a text like this to think through this carefully. In the year 1845, the legislature of Upper Canada, which was still then a British province, comprised mostly of Presbyterian Methodists, passed a law. They passed an act. And this act, even acts had long names back in the old days, this act was called an act to prevent the profanation of the Lord's Day, commonly called Sunday. And this act prohibited worldly labor, business, and work. And it allowed acts of necessity, such as charity, to continue. 
And this act followed in the long history of the English law tradition regarding the Lord's Day and seeing it as a truly unique day in the passage of time. And in fact, legislation like this is not new to Canada or new to the West at all. It actually goes back as far as the year 321 AD. After the Roman Empire became majority Christian and the Emperor Constantine himself made a profession of faith, uh, the Roman Empire came to new Sabbath laws. And for the meme going around, yes, ladies, we think about the Roman Empire every day. (laughs) It's true. In 1906, this act, Canada's its own independent nation, was updated as the Lord's Day Act. But now we move into my life When I was in elementary school, and I remember following this because I was a bit of a nerd when it came to political stuff, in April of 1985, five-year-old me was noticing something in the news and a charter challenge to certain Sabbath laws. And a drug company in Ottawa known as the Big M Drug Mart had sued the government regarding Sabbath laws. And in April of 1985, the Lord's Day Act was struck down by the Supreme Court of Canada. In much more recent memory, and now we're talking very, very recent, in December of 2020, the province of Manitoba lifted the last of its restrictions on Sunday shopping so that there are virtually no reminders left in the commercial world that there is even such a thing as the Lord's Day, even in the small town prairies. Today, it's not uncommon in my life in farming to sometimes see combines rolling on farms where this would have been unthinkable 25 years ago. And so we have conflicting messages here that we need to think about. What is happening? And there's two possibilities, at least two possibilities. One is that the forces of modernity have corrected the unnecessary legalism of bygone days. Another possibility is that the forces of secularism have so eroded our reverence for God in the public square that they have been replaced with new customs that have started to seem normal to us. And we are people that want to be submitted to God's word, and so we need to humbly bend the knee to what Christ would have us do in all these things. And so this means that everyone in this room, and I'm going to ask for commitment here, you don't have to shout it out loud, but all of us come this morning with a tradition of some sort, and all of us need to be ready to question it, no matter how comfortable our tradition is. Some have a tradition of legalism around Sabbath observance. And some have a tradition of laxness. Do you know that carelessness is a tradition? Not having a tradition is a tradition. Okay? Everyone showed up here with a tradition this morning, so let's consider it in light of God's word. We must be ever mindful that religious customs in the public square are always a question of which ones we will have, not whether or not we will have religious customs. We will. The question is which kind of religious customs will we have? And so even without Sunday laws on the books nowadays, it's not as though we don't have customs and liturgies which mark the passage of time in our culture. We have a high religious feast month in June every year to celebrate the gods of vile sexuality. And we don't mark civic events so much now anymore with a prayer to the Lord for his assistance as we make decisions so much as we apologize for living where we live. The passage of time and public liturgy is inevitable. God is always being worshipped when we mark time. A God, at least. 
So customs are inevitable, and customs are designed to teach. And this is both a feature and a bug. Customs do teach us. Religious customs which, which shape our thinking, again, are inevitable. This is an unavoidable concept. This is a which, not a whether. It's not whether we will have customs that are training us to think a certain way. It's which customs are training us to think a certain way. And so when we look at a passage like Matthew 12, as we are this morning, some people come to this already assuming it can't, you know, Sabbath laws are not part of my experience, so this, it must be somehow a softening uh, or a significant change in what's happening. And maybe it is, but let's observe. Some see Sabbath observation in the Old Covenant, and then now, in a passage like this, they see Jesus essentially saying, no, the Sabbath is over, it's done. Okay, so Jesus is overturning it or terminating it. Or at the very least, he's lowering the bar of expectation uh, for what this kind of a day looks like. But to understand Jesus' background of the run-in with the Pharisees here, we should understand, or at least familiarize ourselves, with what the Old Testament actually says about the Sabbath. And we might be tempted, you think, okay, well, what does the Old Testament say about Sabbath? We might be thinking, first, we should go to the Old, uh, or to the, the Ten Commandments. Okay? And, of course, there is Sabbath law in the Ten Commandments. But it goes back further than that. Sabbath goes back to the very beginning of creation. When God establishes for his creation a pattern of six and one. God works in creative energy for six days. And then at the end of his creative efforts, he takes a day of rest. And so long before Moses was given the law, we see that the law is already written on the hearts of Adam and Eve and their children between them and Moses. We are, after all, made in the image of God. So before Moses wrote the first three commandments about our duties to God in worship and speech, think about this. God holds people accountable for the contents of the Ten Commandments before the Ten Commandments show up. Okay? There was no law on the book. There was no stone tablet about murder when Cain killed his brother. And yet Cain is clearly accountable. Cain is clearly guilty of murder long before Moses showed up with these tablets of stone. The law was already in place as a moral picture of God. Okay? Uh, and even, uh, even the very sacrifice that they offered that created this envy in the first place. Why is one accepted and one isn't? There's no commandments that we have on the books about what acceptable worship to the Lord looks like, and yet they're expected to know because God receives the one offering and not the other, which sets up the conditions for this murder in the first place. So the six-in-one pattern of work and rest is established long before Moses, long before Sinai, long before the giving of the law. And this is consistent with Paul's teaching in Romans that nobody is ignorant whether we've grown up with the Bible or not, everybody is made in the image of God, and they do, in fact, know better. If Paul says that even Gentiles who don't have the law know deep down what the law demands of them, because they too are made in God's image. Okay, and frequently, people who uh, are formally opposed to God understand this better than we do. I've made reference to that a few times in the past. Uh, in this, I was reading about how when uh, when those who lead in the civic sphere are attempting to destroy all traces of Christianity, they know there's something important about the calendar. In the French Revolution, uh, when a prostitute was put on the altar in Notre Dame Cathedral, because now we're French, we're not Catholic anymore, we're going to worship reason, and they named this prostitute Sophia, wisdom, they did something else that was very important and strategic. They created a 10-day week, because a 7-day week would remind people of the triune God of Scripture. 
Part of the French Revolution was trying to recreate the world in the image of man. And more recently, in the Soviet Union, this was attempted to throw people off by making them work for eight days before they got a day of rest. God's enemies know six and one is actually really important, which is why there's always an effort to change six and one. So what does the law, when, when we f- see further light on the Sabbath principle, not just at creation, but now explanation, what does it actually say? And you can turn in your Bible to Exodus 20, and let's read verses 8 through 11. This is the fourth commandment. Exodus 20, 8 through 11. It says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so we can see now further explanation for the six-in-one pattern that started in creation and why there's a continued observance for the people of God. So the rest that God enjoys after his creative work is also meant for us to enjoy. It's a gift. And Jesus says that elsewhere in the Gospels, that the Sabbath, or that man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. Sabbath rest is a gift of God to his people. So this shouldn't be burdensome, however we're going to end up thinking about this. The principle here is quite straightforward. There isn't a long list of highly specific regulations in the law of Moses. There's a principle of what we ought to do. And so let's also keep in mind that the Ten Commandments are the basic framework for all God's moral law. These laws are a reflection of his character and his expectations for creation. And so God's moral law operates differently than the ceremonial laws and the food laws, which are in fact ended in Christ. The moral law carries on forever because it's a picture of God's very character, not just of certain customs uh, for specific people in a certain time. And so there are some in our day who believe that the Ten Commandments are no longer relevant. So the the assumption here is, there's two assumptions about how we see continuity and discontinuity between our Old and New Testament. Uh, Some see that everything from the Old Testament is rendered irrelevant. That's just the Word of God emeritus. That was the Word of God. The Old Testament used to be the Word of God. Okay, so it's no longer really relevant except or unless something from the Old Testament is repeated in the New Testament. Now we have to obey it. But the one assumption is that everything is irrelevant except if it's repeated. The more classical conception is everything from the Old Testament remains relevant unless the New Testament specifically says, no, that was just the food laws for the Jews, for example. Okay? Uh, and the assumption I work with is that the Old Testament is the word of God today. It's living and breathing. And Jesus, after all, said he didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. So I would work and I would encourage you all to work with the assumption it's all relevant unless we have clear teaching in the New Testament that something was just for a particular season. So some have this conception that the the Ten Commandments are null and void. Uh, And this ends up being practical only really about the Sabbath because I don't know too many Christians who make a case for Christian murder. And I don't know too many Christians who make a Christian case for covetousness. Okay? Or a Christian case for lying. I, I don't know that. It's only typically about the Sabbath that this becomes relevant. So we're free to, uh, to break the one out of nine. So nine somehow stand, but one is terminated. It doesn't quite make sense to me. Uh, 
And on this assumption that everything from the Old Testament is terminated unless it's repeated in the New Testament, we run into problems with that as well. If that's the case, please make me a case from the New Testament that you cannot marry your sister. Or that bestiality is unlawful. You can't do it. Suddenly you want your Old Testament back, right? Okay? The Old Testament is the Word of God. Jesus says so. It's living and breathing. The Old Testament, it's not that it was the Word of God. It is the Word of God today. And so we have to see, yes, there's continuity. Yes, there's discontinuity. But ultimately, we want to see harmony between old and new. So one thing that we can learn repeatedly in the life and ministry of Jesus is how this harmony is achieved. Jesus says explicitly in Matthew 5 that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And that needs to shape our reading of today's text. Jesus is not abolishing the Sabbath. He's demonstrating Sabbath principle. So in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, which we looked at a number of well, months by now ago, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so when we look at the interaction here between Jesus and the Pharisees in Matthew 12, what we have to be absolutely certain of is that Jesus is not actually violating the law. Whatever he's being accused of, he's not actually violating the law. If he was, that means Jesus is a sinner. If he violated Sabbath, if that's what's happening in Matthew 12, is that Jesus was actually violating the Sabbath, he cannot die for your sins. And he cannot cover you in his perfect righteousness. The gospel would explode or implode at that point. So however we read this, we, need, we must realize that Jesus did not violate the Sabbath. What he violated was man-made traditions about the Sabbath. That was the offense. So do not read this as, well, the Sabbath was then, but Jesus is now, and times have changed, and I know I have. Okay? And Jesus himself didn't even keep the Sabbath, so it must really not be a big deal anymore. And this is the approach, again, that's characteristic of the approach that many have today of God's law overall. As though God was angry in the Old Testament, and now age and wisdom have really mellowed God out. And so the bar used to be here, but now the bar is down here. And some people think that's grace. Grace is God just lowering the bar and making it easy, and sin is not such a big deal. But if you keep reading in Matthew 5, Jesus doesn't lower the bar. He raises it. My guess is there's not one person in this room who has committed murder. My guess is nobody is guilty of the sixth commandment in this room. But what does Jesus say? If you get angry at your brother and you call him a fool, guess what you're guilty of? Murder. Jesus raises the bar. If the Old Testament looks like the test is for me to swim across Falcon Lake with enough training and enough perseverance, I might do it. Jesus is saying, you have to get across the Atlantic Ocean without a break. Okay, that's your job. Jesus makes the bar so impossibly high that if we're understanding what he's doing, that means we have to despair of doing this ourselves and we must find our rest in him. We must be covered by his righteousness because he is the only one who can truly fulfill all that the law intends. When Jesus fulfills a law, he is demonstrating the spirit in that law. And so we actually become accountable for more than just the outward conformity 
that the Pharisees were trying to pull off. We are accountable to understand the spirit here and to live in the spirit of these things. And so let's look more closely. Verses 1 and 2 here in Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look at your disciples. Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And again, when we look to the actual law of the Old Testament, there is no law prohibiting gleaning in order to feed yourself on the Sabbath. This law is not there. This is an oral tradition of the Pharisees. What we do have in the law of Moses is instructions for farmers to leave the margins of their land unharvested in order that the needy and travelers could feed themselves on the way through. Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 23. So there were laws about farmers going about their normal business as though the Sabbath is just another threshing day generally. That was forbidden. But leaving margin for people to feed themselves on their way through town or for the destitute was clearly not lawful at all or not unlawful at all. So what Christ and the disciples did was not at all a violation of God's law. Okay? All they violated was the man-made traditions, the man-made uh, oral telling that the Pharisees had among themselves. And Jesus, as he always does under fire, he appeals back to Scripture to make his point. So Jesus isn't saying, no, the law doesn't apply to me. Jesus goes and gives an explanation of the law when he makes his appeal. In verse 3 and 4, he goes on, he says, He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate of the present, they ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. And so Jesus here is referring to an account that you can read about in your Bibles in 1 Samuel 21. David is on the run, and Samuel, at this point in his life, has already appointed David to be the future king of Israel. But David has not yet taken the throne. He's still on the run from Saul. And so David was more or less an outlaw needing cover. And he finds it when he gets to Ahimelech the priest uh, and the, the temple, or not the temple at that time, but the, uh, the sanctuary worship of God. Ahimelech the priest had no food for David apart from the showbread that was in the sanctuary. And this bread, again, if you go back and read about it in the Old Testament, this bread was baked fresh and replaced in the sanctuary weekly. And the priests were allowed to eat from it once it was discarded. Okay? So you see that often in the Old Testament. The priests are allowed to eat of the sacrifice. That's part of the tithe that gets paid to them. And so the priests had access to eat this bread. And so Ahimelech took what he could rightfully have and he shared some of it with David to nourish him when he was starving. And again, this isn't an unlawful arrangement. This bread being replaced was actually food for the priests. And Ahimelech chose to share his rightful portion of food with David in order to show mercy, which is an important principle in all of this. So there's also significance in this story, redemptive historical significance, to the fact that David himself, as we all know, is a type of Christ. He is a type of the one to come. And so there's also redemptive historical significance to David receiving this bread at the hands of the priest. Jesus goes on, verse 5. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
we don't see it with our sensibilities, but there are multiple invitations to an open fight in this. Jesus is asking for it. Or more likely, the priests are asking for it. There's several direct challenges here. Jesus is asking now for the second time. Have you not read in the law? These were the teachers of Israel. Jesus is saying, do you guys even read the Bible when you're coming up with your traditions? Do you even bother to consult, you know, in your back to the Bible movement that you're so proud of? Do you even bother reading the Bible before you make up these man-made traditions? So keep in mind how jarring this would have been. The Pharisees did, in fact, start out as a back-to-the-Bible movement before they became ingrown and covered with hypocrisy and man-made tradition. These were the people who thought that they really did have a high view of the Scripture. And now Jesus is basically asking them if they can even read their Bibles. So in this case, Christ is looking at the priests who serve on the Sabbath and saying they're not Sabbath breakers. Okay? If, if the Pharisaical sensibility about Sabbath was correct the priests would be violating the Sabbath principle. And yet the priests, it's not that the priests had permission to violate the Sabbath. For the priests to extend Sabbath to others, the priests had to be at their station. They had to be doing this to bless the people. Right? After all, God desires mercy and not sacrifice. So part of the way of ministering to the people was that the priests had specific Sabbath obligations in order to minister mercy out to the people of Israel. And in, <clears throat> so Christ is saying, essentially, that the priests were not rejecting their duties, but fulfilling them with their service in the temple on the Sabbath. And then he says something very provoking here, very abrasive. Jesus says that one greater than the Sabbath is here, or one greater than the temple is here. That is an invitation for a fight. Okay? He's provoking a head-on confrontation. Jesus is making a claim to his own deity. After all, the temple was merely a symbolic location of where God was pleased to dwell among his people. But the temple itself was only a temporary thing to point forward to the Messiah when God would dwell bodily with his people. And Jesus is saying, not only have you guys misread the Bible, you've actually misread history. You don't understand what this temple is because one greater than the temple is standing right here right now, fulfilling Sabbath. You guys can't read anything. You can't read a text and you can't read a story. Okay? Christ is making a claim to deity. And in verse 7, he quotes Hosea 6.6 6, that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. And this was exactly the problem with the Pharisees and their reading of Scripture. The Pharisees treated Scripture as though it was this mural to stare at. Okay? And if you stare at it long enough, you'll maybe your eyes will start playing tricks on you and you'll start seeing things that aren't there. But scripture is not a mural to stare at. Scripture is a lens to see everything through. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. Okay? It's a lens to see everything in the world from art to history to science to worship. Everything. It's a lens to see through. And the Pharisees were not looking at scripture that way. They were adding their own ideas to it. So Christ is also taking them to school on how to read their Bibles, how to interpret their Bibles correctly. And so remember, Sabbath in its original design is meant for rest and to enter into a season of peace. God himself enjoys rest after his work. And the law states that households are to enjoy a day of rest after six days of toil. And so the true purpose of Sabbath is served when David gets the food he needs from Ahimelech. 
and when the disciples glean a handful of grain. Okay? People don't enjoy starvation. It's not peaceful. It's not restful. So for God to give his provision to these servants of his in this manner is a form of helping people enter in to peace. Enter into Sabbath rest. And this is what Hosea means when he says that God desires mercy more than sacrifice. The Sabbath itself is a mercy from God. Okay? And we're still all designed in the image of God. So I can tell you all this with a great degree of confidence. Not one person in this room is designed to go seven days. We're not designed for that. Okay? You're fighting nature. You're fighting grace. You're fighting God if you think you're designed to go for seven. You're not. You're designed to go for six. Take a breath, start over. So it's against nature, it's against creation, and it's against both the the letter and the spirit of the law to violate the principle, the spirit behind Sabbath. And Jesus ends this portion in verse 8 by saying that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Again, an invitation to a fight. And this is significant in a few ways. One, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. He often does that. And many people think, well, that's a reference to his humanity. Uh, It may be, but I think more likely it's actually a reference to his divinity. In uh, Daniel 7, we have the Ancient of Days vision, where one, like a Son of Man, ascends to the Ancient of Days and is given all honor and all dominion and all glory. One like a son of man. That means this divine being that's ascending to the ancient of days looks like a man, but there's more to it than that he's just a man. When Jesus calls himself the son of man, he's saying, I'm God. I'm God, and I am ascending to my Father to be given all dominion. So all of these customs, all this temple, all this bread, all of this is pointing to me. You people need to see it. One greater than the temple is here. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The ascended Son of Man has all authority in heaven and on earth after his earthly ministry is completed. This is the ascension. And we're seeing another step in Jesus' argument here that somehow the Sabbath is about him. We're getting closer. And this also explains why we have gone, I've mentioned this before, specifically at Easter, but this also explains why we as Christians have moved from a seventh-day Sabbath on Saturday to a first-day Sabbath on Sunday. Okay, that already happened in the New Testament where the, uh, the saints met on the first day of the week. This is biblical in itself. Christ rose on the first day of a new creation. Okay? We're in a new creation in one sense, at least an initiated new creation after the resurrection of Christ. History cannot go on the same way after a man is raised out of the grave than it did before. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and so it's fitting that his life instigates this principle in its more fulfilled form on the first day of a new creation. And if you ever wonder why do Seventh-day Adventists call themselves Seventh-day Adventists? Because they're still on the Seventh-day Sabbath. Okay? The rest of the church has moved on to the first-day Sabbath, which I think is established in the resurrection. We sang about it this morning. This is the day that he rose again. Okay? Every time we gather for worship on Sunday morning, we are celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are entering into his Sabbath rest. so Jesus is not canceling the Sabbath here. He's not overturning it. Rather, what he's doing is showing that the Sabbath has grown up. We've got a grown-up Sabbath now, and it's moving to a more fitting place on our calendar, the first day. It's about Christ. It's meant to point us to Christ. 
before summer, we ended off in Matthew chapter 11. And Matthew chapter 11 ends with Jesus' invitation to take his yoke upon ourselves to find rest for our souls. Our ultimate Sabbath rest is peace with God. And this comes only and exclusively through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So on this side of Christ's ministry that we're on, we are no longer working in anticipation of the gospel. Rather, we are working out of rest. Okay? Christ has given us rest. He has given us peace with God through the gospel. Therefore, we go out and work. We're not working for rest. We're working out of rest. We're working out of abundance. God fills us on the first day of the week so we can work out of that fullness. We're not working for it. We're working out of it. That's what a Lord's Day Sabbath at the beginning of the week is demonstrating. We start every week by resting in Christ, being filled through the ministry of his servants as they continue to serve his people, as we gather for corporate worship, and then we go out for six days and do our ordinary labor. And so we are in a much better position than the Old Testament saints who had to work in anticipation of getting there. We work out of that. And again, this is why we call it the Lord's Day, because this is the day of the resurrection. We we now know what the Sabbath is pointing us forward to, or what it was always pointing to. So in all of this, we must never lose sight of the spirit or the purpose of this day. It is to rest in Christ and I think that's ultimately the, the, the picture here of Jesus and the travelers and David typologically showing this beforehand is that Christ is a walking, living, moving Sabbath, bringing rest, bringing fullness, bringing fulfillment, bringing peace wherever he goes. Christ is a living Sabbath. And he performs a miracle next to dramatize and illustrate this reality very close. In verses 9 through 14, it says, He went on from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And this miracle may very well have been custom designed to remind the Pharisees about something that they should have been reading in 1 Kings 13. And in that story, Jeroboam is offering sacrifices when a man of God comes out to rebuke him. And Jeroboam wants to seize this man of God, just like the Pharisees are here trying to trap Jesus. And when Jeroboam says, seize that guy, he reaches out and his hand dries up. Dries up on the vine. 1 Kings 13, 6 and 7 says, And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and it became as it was before. And the king said to the son of man, Come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. Jeroboam's hand is healed, and both he and the man of God go enjoy a time of peace and refreshing. And Christ goes on to talk about a sheep that's fallen into a well, and points to the Pharisees that even they would rescue their sheep if it fell in the pit on a Sabbath. And see, the sheep also is not enjoying Sabbath being caught in a pit, any more than Christ's sheep enjoy being trapped in sin or difficulty. Ezekiel, 13, uh, Ezekiel 34 talks about unfaithful shepherds who leave their sheep unprotected and unfed. 
And a faithful shepherd will see to it that his flock is able to enter into Sabbath rest. So a good priest and a good shepherd renders his service on the Sabbath, not because he has special permission to violate the Sabbath, but because this is how God is extending Sabbath rest to those around him. And so it's not hard to see how all of these pictures feed into an image of Christ. We have a man of God fixing a withered hand so that restoration and refreshing can be had. We have a shepherd rescuing his sheep from the pit so that it can be fed, so that it can go on and enjoy the rest of its Sabbath. We have David, a type of Christ, going out from the wilderness into the presence of God to be fed and to enjoy Sabbath. And now we have the greater David, his grandson Jesus, coming out of the field into the tabernacle for that same Sabbath rest. Christ is pictured here from top to bottom. David is a type of Christ. The bread is an element that we still use to communicate Christ. And the sanctuary is the dwelling place of the triune God. So we have a picture of Christ all around. Christ is a man feeding on Christ in the presence of Christ. And this is the ultimate Sabbath rest. And is really an extension of what Jesus left off in chapter 11. To take his yoke on ourselves and find rest for our souls. And so how do we apply this? This is the tricky part. How do we make application once we understand the spirit? The Eastern European theologian Yaroslav Pelikan has said, and I agree with him, that traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And tradition is the living faith of the dead. So by this definition, boo to traditionalism and yay for tradition. Tradition helps. Tradition creates patterns if it's living faith. And again, like I mentioned at the beginning, everyone here has a tradition that you showed up with this morning. Some of us come with a tradition that might be legalistic about Sunday, a list of do's and don'ts, but we don't really understand what these things mean. And others of us come from a newer and more novel tradition of treating the Lord's Day like it's just any other day of the week. It doesn't really matter what we do. And so this newer tradition avoids the list of do's and don'ts, but it's replaced with an equally shallow view that somehow Christ didn't come to fulfill the law. He did, in fact, come to abolish it. Okay? So we all need to examine our traditions on this point. Whether your tradition is an old one or a more recent one, we need to examine it. Whether you personally, and think about yourself, don't think about your neighbor who needs to hear the exact opposite of what you need to hear. Let's think about this all for ourselves here. What we all need to examine is my own tradition. What am I in greater danger of? Am I in danger of legalism or am I in danger of carelessness? And that's where we make application. If you're the kind of person who tends to lean more towards the favor of comfort and rules, this passage can reorient us to the drama and the doctrine of what Sabbath really means. So we see a picture of what's intended by the Sabbath. And you'll soon know that rule-keeping and legalism are not free. They're burdensome. I was reading about some uh, a very strict Jewish community in Florida that had a retirement home. And they had Sabbath elevators in their retirement home. So that on the Sabbath, uh, you never had to press a button and do work. The elevator just stopped at every floor. And uh, the man who was telling the story said he was there one time when the Sabbath function wasn't working on it. And this older Jewish man asked him to press the button to get to his floor. And he said, okay, so you can't do work and go to hell, but you're happy for me to press this elevator button and go to hell for you? <laughs> like that's, okay, is he extending Sabbath? No. He's getting so caught up in the rules, he's missing the principle. If you're so caught up on making sure you're at church on time 
and you just zipped past some single mom with a blown tire on the side of the road and her little kids are crying there, but you're not going to do work because you're on church on time, this is the error that you're probably bumping up against. Okay? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It is okay to be a Christian on Sunday. Be a Christian on Sunday. Okay? And this is a word that some of us need. Rule-keeping and legalism are burdensome. And we need to make sure that we don't become like the Pharisees, demanding certain very specific things on which the Scripture is silent. Legalism tends to make us quite busy, and this is ironic, and incapable of enjoying the Sabbath or extending it to others because we're worried about other people. However, many of us, and I would guess most, because of the times we live in, don't struggle with that temptation. I think most of us live brushing up against the other guardrail, and maybe some of us have just driven right through it. Towards the comfort of carelessness. And this is, this is far too simple, because if, if there's no teaching about the Sabbath whatsoever, if there's no enduring principle, that's actually far too easy for us, because that means none of us really have to change anything. Right? That's very convenient. Okay, always beware of a Bible uh, interpretation that leaves you with nothing to do, because you're already crushing it. Okay? So we need to beware of that. Okay? This reading would say that we don't have anything to do because we've already been surrounded by a society that profanes the Lord's Day 52 times every single year. And I wondered as I thought about this, what must it look like for a holy God to himself enjoy rest and then make a creature in his image that he knows full well needs this rest and he gives it to us as a gift And he looks down on the cities of men and it's like nothing happened. We're just driving around, doing our shopping trips, like nothing special whatsoever is about this day. What must our cities on Sunday look like to God? Treating the Sabbath as though it's nothing. It's just another profane day. I think God is grieved if that is our attitude. And again, my suspicion is that many of us will struggle more on this side because that's the society and the surrounding we're with. But there are dire warnings for profaning the Sabbath when God offers rest. Israel was exiled specifically for not honoring the Sabbath, and they violated both the spirit and the letter of the law. And God had threatened, if you don't observe Sabbaths, I will force you to observe Sabbath. And he gives Israel the most fitting punishment you can imagine. After 490 years, notice this is divisible by seven, After 490 years of not observing the Sabbath, I'm going to kick you out for 70 years. Isn't that a fitting punishment? One-seventh. Every day you refused to honor me, and my day is a day you're going to spend under the yoke of people who hate you. I will force you to take rest if you will not do this on your own. And it will not be a happy rest when the Babylonians are in charge. So my question is, are we tempting God with this? Is our non-stop life of hustle and bustle and activity and commerce on seven days a week taking us into a time of desolation which will force rest upon us in the future? And I'll admit, I've had to go through some of my own assumptions working through this, not just in this text, but just generally. I've had to put some thought into this. What's arbitrary? What's just familiar to me? What's a biblical principle? And I hope we can all go through that exercise. And there are some guardrails here. Sometimes we set the spirit of the law and the letter of law 
of the law at such odds that we think we can somehow break the letter by obeying the Spirit. And I don't think that's wrong. Or I do think that's wrong. We honor the Spirit when we understand what the letter means. So you'd quickly detect the foolishness of me saying, well, yeah, but the spirit of the law against murder is that I shouldn't hate people. So as long as I'm loving someone, I can break the letter of the law. Like, I can murder them as long as I'm loving them. Right? I'm, I'm obeying the spirit of the law. It's just don't get caught up on your legalism. Right? You'd quickly notice how foolish that is. We honor the spirit of the law when we honor and understand the letter and follow it with a true heart, not out of duty and obligation or a self-righteous spirit. Understanding the spirit of the law keeps us from adding unnecessary extra letters, and it also helps us understand what these letters are meant to teach us. Mercy is better than sacrifice. And so in this case, the spirit of Sabbath that Christ is introducing to us is rest and peace. We're not ministers of rest and peace if we're busy keeping our little traditions alive and judging brothers and sisters who have different scruples than us. And we're also not ministers of rest and peace when we're running from event to event on a day that is specifically designed to keep you from running from event to event and going on with normal commerce. And so my own tradition, I think, is a strange concoction of both observance and carelessness. And I think all Christians agree or should agree that necessary works carry on. Christ himself teaches that here. If your sheep falls in a pit, then go get it out. I'm a dairy farmer, and my cows have to get milk and fed on Sunday just like every other day. The church has to function. This is true. But those are works of necessity, and there's plenty of other things that we don't do on our farm, and we're not about to start. Okay? If I can't plan getting enough bales on the yard so that I can make it through the weekend without needing a separate trip, the problem's not that I don't have enough time. The problem's that I'm not planning. I'm not thinking. That's the problem. Okay? If you need to do your grocery run on Sunday, that's not because you don't have enough time. It's because you're using six days poorly. Okay? You don't need Sunday to carry on your commercial activity. You don't. Okay? Manage the six days God gave for that and you'll soon find we can have a day of peace. Sunday is meant for corporate worship of the risen Christ, and this should not be forsaken. And I'll ask you a question here too. How many Christians do you know that are spiritually healthy and actively being sanctified who regularly skip the Lord's Day gathering? How many do you know? They're really healthy, vibrant Christians in church 20% of the time. I don't know that guy. Maybe you do. Maybe he is out there. I've never met him, okay? Sunday is meant for rest, and this means that activities and commerce don't carry on with the normal pace. And I don't want to overreact, but I don't want to say less than what the principle involved here is, okay? We don't want to selfishly have rest, but also to actively extend rest to those around us. And if I'm just participating in a system that makes it look natural that some of our young people are scheduled to be working in the grocery store Sunday at 1, and they have to rush out of church or skip church altogether. I don't want to contribute to a system that makes that look like that's inevitable or natural or necessary. Okay? I'll do my shopping Saturday night. We are out of chocolate syrup in our house right now, which is actually a pretty significant problem. <laughs> but it can wait. It can wait. Even I will admit that. Even ice cream can wait till Monday. Less easily, but it can. Okay? And at the same time, let's be gracious about this. When we live in an age that has reshaped our customs and our way of thinking, it could be that many of us haven't thought about this much at all. So let's not be judgmental towards other Christians who are just maybe thinking about this for the very first time, or maybe who arrive at a little bit of a different detail on some things than you. 
Let's understand the spirit here and encourage each other to observe that. We're all coming from somewhere. And after 40 years of marinating in a society that has self-consciously, with our highest authority in the land, said the Lord's day is irrelevant, we can't help but have been shaped by that. That has taught us. And it's taught us for 40 years. Okay, So let's not expect everyone to suddenly see this the same way after this message. But let's think about this. Let's make application. Where are you at? And some questions to, act, to ask ourselves here. For each of your homes, and again, this is so important. This is for you. This isn't for the person sitting beside you or behind you. This is for you. Ask yourself some of these questions about honoring the Lord's Day. How is my family practicing rest? How are we practicing rest? Two, how are we actively extending that rest to other people? Because the principle that we have isn't just for me, myself, and I. It's also to extend rest. And that may mean acts of mercy, like Ahimelech giving David bread. Okay? It's extending rest. It's extending peace. It's extending the grace of God to others. Are we making them do our work for us? Like the Orthodox Jewish man on the elevator. Or do we understand the principle so we're not resorting to stuff like that? Question three. How are we putting aside the distractions of the other six days so we can more fully press into the spirit of Sabbath? Not in a legalistic way, but in an understanding way. And the spirit of Sabbath is to take on the easy yoke of Christ and to find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have designed us and you have designed the calendar and you have designed creation in such a way that we can be busy at the things of taking dominion and earning bread for ourselves and our families and doing uh, things that we enjoy just for the sheer enjoyment of it. Lord, I thank you that you have built that into creation, but I also thank you that you know our limitations and that we need a rest and we need a weekly rest. And it is fitting that we do it on your day where you have been resurrected out of the grave to establish a new creation order. Lord, and I pray that we would not be mindless people who just go about as though nothing is happening on the Lord's day. And I pray also that we would not be joyless legalists. Lord, help us to understand the principle so we can put this into practice in meaningful, practical ways that are not judgy, that are not self-righteous, that are not showy, but that help us enter into your rest more deeply and encourage those around us to do the same. Lord, I pray that you would do that even as we uh, enjoy the mercy of a shared lunch today. I pray that the fellowship would be genuine, would be warm, uh, that you would be honored, that we would be rested, and that we would understand what it means to enter into your rest and to do this weekly dress rehearsal for the eternal rest that still waits us. Lord, help us not to miss the drama in the doctrine. Thank you for your kindness. And we commit these people and the rest of our day into your kind and fatherly hands. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Please stand and sing with us.
So receive the charge with a believing heart. From the beginning, the Sabbath has been a marker to separate one week from another. God performs his creative work for six days and then enters into his rest. And this sets up the pattern for all of human history afterwards. In the days of promise under the old covenant, the people of God toiled in anticipation of future rest. In the new covenant, Christ becomes the new Adam in the new garden and initiates the new creation with his resurrection on the first day of the week. The day has moved, but so far from destroying the old principles, the Lord's Day Sabbath fulfills and explains the old principles. We now work out of our rest instead of for it. Christ is our final Sabbath, and we rehearse for eternity each week when we set aside the business of the other six days in order to be fed by Christ through worship, through fellowship, and through a day of not only enjoying peace, but in being intentional to extend it to those around us. And then the benediction from Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And stay in peace. And young men, you're not violating the Sabbath principle by getting chairs set up so mom doesn't have to. So get to it.